0: Welcome back to another episode of Life Undefined. This next guest is a dynamic, intelligent, young, and beautiful soul who also happens to have a warrior spirit and will fight for the disenfranchised and call anyone out on their shit. And honestly, it's young adults like her that give me so much hope for the future. She is a recent graduate from the University of Arizona with a bachelor's in political science and is embarking on a new journey to teach and inspire youth of color in Chicago through the Teach for America program. Please welcome Mariah Barnett to the show. Hey, girl. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited to have you here. First, I want to congratulate you. I know it was back in December, right, that you graduated, and you got your bachelor's in poli-sci, and... Thank you so and much. And congratulations on your upcoming employment with Teach for America. And you're leaving like really soon? Like when? Monday. Oh my gosh. Okay. So Mariah to the big windy city. <laughs> She's He's going. On her way. So first, um, just kind of give give us a little bit of a background. Like who are you, where you come from, how'd you grow up? Why don't we start yeah. there?
1: Um, well, like Yvonne said, my name is Mariah Barnett. Um, I grew up in Arizona. I was born in Sierra Vista and then I moved to Tucson when I was eight. Um I grew up more on the north side of Tucson and um I'm mixed. I identify as a mixed black woman. I'm half black, half white. My mom's white, my dad is black. Um, and yeah, just, I grew up, I would say socioeconomically, I grew up very privileged and very, I never had to want for anything. Um, I had everything I needed and everything I wanted. Um, the schools that I went to had enough funding to get us all books and the resources that we needed. So I would say, um, socioeconomically growing up, I had a lot of privilege, um, as far as like racially and like, that sort of thing. I didn't have as much privilege, especially going to uh, predominantly white schools. I was pretty different than everyone else.
0: So, yeah, I want to talk about that. That's a great just segue. So growing up being biracial, um, when did you become aware of that, that you kind of just didn't fit in one particular spot? Kind of what was your awareness? At what age did you kind of start recognizing that?
1: Hmm. I would probably say like as young as like second or third grade. Um, you know, I was, I grew up a competitive dancer. And so, um, I would say that's a predominantly white world. And so I was always, you know, like the only black girl in ballet or like the only, I just looked different than everyone else. Um, so I noticed that there was kind of a difference, but, um, Like, if we would be around or, like, at, like, a family reunion or something, um, I knew I necessarily didn't look like that or didn't necessarily fit in that category. Um, And I, I just remember as a little girl, a lot of the times feeling like, and no one made me feel this way, not my mom, not my dad, but I oftentimes felt like I had to pick a side, like, like, if I would feel like, and this is so stupid, this is such a dumb example, but, like if I felt like if I listened to like a certain song that was like considered like white people music, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm not black anymore. Like people are going to like, totally disown me. Like I'm done. And then I felt like, you know, if I like indulge in certain things in black culture, then what the white people I hang around are going to like shun me or not understand me. Like, so it was just
0: very confusing. (laughs) Well, yeah. And, and at such a young age and, you know, it's funny you talk about that. Like just the messages that you get, like your parents, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a dark skin Latinx woman and um, your parents may not necessarily give you any of these messages, but you, as a young child, you feel them throughout society. You know, (laughs) what is considered, you know, I don't know, like for me, it was always, you know, lighter is better, darker is bad. And so for you to have to kind of straddle that and, you know, have your feet in both, world, but still not feel, you know, still feel like like you're constantly, yeah, you belong in either, or, you know, you're constantly judged by the other side, that, that Mm must have been super difficult, especially as a young kid, and super confusing. Yeah,
1: it was super confusing, and I think especially because, like, you know, when I was growing up, there wasn't really a lot of, like, conversations about this kind of stuff, so it was just almost, like, unheard of, like, and I would I just remember always telling my mom, I hate being mixed. I hate being mixed. I wish I could just be one. I wish I could just choose and just be one. It's too confusing. I hate it. And she just never like understood why I hated it so much, but it was just because of how confusing it was and how confusing everyone else made it for me.
0: Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's so interesting because you don't even know, you know, what, what kiddos are dealing with at that age. And you just think, well, you know, your mom and dad are probably just like, well, we love each other. And we created yeah. these, you know, I know you have a brother, we've created these two beautiful children. And, and that's exactly what my
1: mom would say every time.
0: Yeah. I mean, I can see both sides as a parent, but then as a kid struggling with like, cause like my mom's lighter skin. So yeah. I would be out in the world with her and you know, I just, I, I just knew like, I'm like, I don't look like her, you know, when I saw my, when people saw my dad, then they'd be like, oh, okay. But you know, so yeah, I, I, I feel you on, you know, just that confusion at that young age, but also picking up on what society puts on, you know, puts out there in those messages and that kids are super smart and they, they can pick up on it. Uh So, okay. So you're growing up, you've, you know, struggled with this. You get to high school, and you um, went to high school in a, I, I mean, I don't know. Is it predominantly white, would you say? I mean, I know it's a kind of. Yeah. A, I, it, I, would, I almost want to call it a
1: rural area.
0: Okay. Which it's, I totally relate to as well.
1: Yeah.
0: So you have like um, rural area with subdivisions and um, yeah. some of that newer housing with like the neighborhood feel, but you also yeah. have you know, the um, the rural vibe of, like, people with, like, horse property and yeah. farms and ranch and exactly. that whole thing. Exactly. So in 2016, yes. your senior year, you had to deal with some pretty overt racism um, at your mm-hmm. school when kids were waving around the Confederate flag. Um, tell me how that – well – I want you to tell me, I mean, obviously about that experience, but I have to imagine that that didn't just pop up your senior year. So take yeah. me through high school and yeah. kind of what, what messages or what were you seeing kind of leading up to that?
1: Yeah. I'll even go a little bit further back from high school. Okay, um, please do. Just yes. because I went to the same school district in elementary and middle school. Okay, And so, um, that I did, that I went to in high school. So, um, all of the situations were somewhat dealt the same, dealt with the same. Um, and so like in fourth grade, I think was the first time I was called the N word. Um, I wouldn't give a kid in my class, my Santa hat. And so he called me the N word, but this particular kid in my class did happen to be autistic, but he was very, very high functioning. Um, he was in class with us. He just had an aid with him sometimes. And so, um, yeah, we knew that he had some learning disabilities, but that was really it. I was also the only black kid in the class, so
0: he was that had to know like something your, was
1: different about me.
0: Was that throughout, like, your whole, like, elementary? Do, were you always the only kid of color? Always
1: one of, like, three. Or if not the only, like, one of, like, three. Okay. And so when he called me that word, it wasn't like it was an accident, because it's like I'm the only kid in the class who is black. So how did you know to call me that? Mm -hmm. And so I went home and told my parents, not even knowing it was a big deal. I'm like, guess what? Some kid called me at school today. I had never heard the word before. And so I just say it nonchalantly. And we were like in the parking lot at Walmart, I think. And they just turned around in the car and parked like, what? And I'm like, what? They're like, what did he call you? and i told them and it just was this whole big deal and basically the school had like a meeting between me and the kid and an administrator and how it ended is basically i had to tell the kid that it was okay and that was like
0: that what was okay that he that he called you that, that he was okay me
1: that. yes kind of, okay. and that was the resolution of it the principal was really didn't know what to do because he was autistic didn't know how to deal with the situation and so that was like my first experience like being called that word and then seeing how it was handled so like that's what I witnessed that it wasn't really dealt with and so then I went to high school and I like literally my first year of high school someone wore a shirt to school that said it's called the White House for a reason get this nigger out Mm -hmm. and like they it wasn't bleeped out there were no asterisks like it was completely spelled out. And my brother actually took a picture of the kid wearing the shirt on campus. I still have the picture on my phone. And um, after school, my dad called uh, one of the administrators and he emailed it to all of them. And, you know, instead of, because this kid went through the entire school day wearing the shirt. We had seven periods in high school and he went through the entire school day. I mean, mind you, if I wore a shirt that had my midriff showing, of course it would stop me, but he went through the whole day wearing that shirt. And so when my dad talked to the admin, they basically said to my dad, well, why didn't your kids come and bring this to our attention during the school day? Why are we just hearing about it now? Uh Like, that's what they had to say to my dad about that. And then it was just, like, pretty much downhill from there. Like, it was just really a string of events that would happen. Like, I mean, kids would chant in the parking lot that they hated black people. And, like, I I was, like, pretty much used to people saying the N-word every single day.
0: And it was to a point where, like, and we're talking N word, hard R, like, like, yeah, completely, racism, like, just nonchalantly. Yes. I, they would
1: call me it to my face just to see what my reaction would be. I got called a black bitch by people just to see what my reaction would be. Um, and it would almost get to a point where, and I know, like, there was one other black girl on my dance team, and we're good friends now, still to this day, and we kind of talk about it, but like, there were just so many times where people said, really, like, really, like, horrible, heinous, violently racist things to us. And we just had to laugh about it. Because if we would have, like, said anything or if we would have, like, gotten upset about it, we would have been alienated more. Our coach, probably, who was, you know, very... had Southern uh, traditions and was a white woman, like, she would have told us to get over it. Like, so we just didn't... Like, a lot of the times, we just knew that the odds wouldn't be in our favor if we stuck up for ourselves.
0: Could you kind of tell like could you say what those things were because part of part of this is you know I want people who are listening to know like it I think it's easy to be like here to hear you know you kind of yeah dance around it because you're trying to be you know professional but what is it you know like what so then there's the impact of like you're still a kid you and your friend exactly so like give me an example
1: yeah I mean, I remember one time we were at someone's birthday party, one of my friends' birthday party. It was, like, at a nice, like, venue. And it was, like, our girl friends were there and our guy friends were there. And um, because we were on dance, we were pretty good friends with, like, all the football players. And so we were well-known. They were well-known, like. And so we were all hanging out. And I, like, don't even know why he thought this would be a good idea, but one of the football players just decides – to say, Mariah, you're a black bitch. (laughs) And we're all just standing around. And I'm like, what? And he was my friend. Like, we were good friends. So I'm like, like, why? And then he just starts saying the N-word, like, E-R. And everyone's, like, saying his name, like, laughing. But they're like, yes, stop. Like, stop. You have to, like, that's so bad. Stop. And it's like, like, now, if that would happen to me now, I can't imagine what I would do. But then I really just had to be like, like once I said the first time, can you stop? And like, he kept going. I knew it was going to be a bigger deal if I said anything. So I just had to like, ha -ha. laugh with them. Like that was my only option.
0: Wow. So,
1: and I think like eventually I got tired of laughing with people and that's why like, I ended up like leaving the school because I was just like, I can't do it anymore.
0: Kind of tell me what happened, you know, um, your senior year. So you're, yeah, you're a senior, you're a senior in high school. You are like captain or co-captain of the dance team. You guys are captain. like, yeah, you guys are like, you know, always in nationals. Like it, that's your life. You're like living your best life in high school, like a normal teenage girl should be. And kind of tell us what what happened.
1: Yeah, I. I mean, I started my senior year expecting it to be normal. I, I had always dealt with racism at that school district, but it was just kind of something that had become, like, normal to me. Like, I just I just learned how to live with it, and I could still have fun. I'm not going to say that people who were my friends at the time were genuine friends, because obviously they weren't, but, like, I learned how to coexist and be okay with it. And, um... Because 2016 was the election year, things just, like, heightened so much more my senior year. And it just, like, it was just, like, a subject that everyone was talking about. And it was just, like, I couldn't even escape it at the school. I would, like, be driving on my way to school and I would get calls from my friends who were like, Mariah, we don't want you to freak out. But there's kids standing in front of the parking lot with Confederate flags waving on traffic. And it's, like... Like, that's how I would, like, pull into school. And it was those same people who were calling me saying those things who were too afraid to go, like, say anything to them. Like, they were just telling me because they wanted me to say something. And um, so I – it's funny because there was an article written about me and my story, like, last summer, and my dad – they asked my dad to talk, and one of the quotes that he gave is that um, I – pretty much like the Confederate flag thing at Marina happened and me doing what I was going to do was pretty much set in stone. Like I was going to do it. it. I had dealt with what I was dealing with at that school for so long that I just like, I actually couldn't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was in the principal's office literally every morning because every morning I would pull up, there be Confederate flags. And so I literally wouldn't even go to class. I would go straight to his office and I would just be like, like, what's going on? Why is this? Why is this acceptable? I don't feel safe. I'm uncomfortable. Like, I would, every time I was walking into the parking lot, um, from campus to my car, from my car to campus, I would call my mom or dad because I didn't feel comfortable walking in the parking lot. And then people started writing things on my car. Someone wrote bitch on my car. Um, and it just, people started to recognize that I was the one One of the main ones complaining about it, like I don't have a problem using my voice and people know that. They know that I'm outspoken and I think that's what makes me a bigger target. Mm -hmm. And so um, they knew that I was in the office every morning. They knew that I was pissed about it. They had seen me one day go up to one of the trucks and rip the flag off and throw it on the ground myself. They had seen me do all those things. Um, And so they came after me really. The principal um, hired an attorney, and they made the decision to ban the flag from campus except for educational purposes because it became a disturbance. And um, I really received, like, the most backlash for that, and... When the news article called my family, because it became a really big, like citywide, like mm-hmm. a lot of people knew about it, yeah. and so news companies were calling my family to ask for statements. And um, a particular one, we gave our name because we were like, "What's the worst that's going to happen? The rednecks are going to get mad at us. Okay, they already hate us because we're black. So what's?" But yeah. that couldn't be the furthest thing from what happened. It was it's funny because now everyone is like anti-racism is so trendy and black lives matter is so trendy, but it's 2021 in in 2016, it was not like that. Correct. Uh, Black lives matter was still a very controversial statement, very controversial statement. Um, uh, Like acknowledging that police do wrong things was a very like taboo subject, something we did not talk about. And so, I don't know why, but everyone got so angry at me. They, and it was mostly like cyberbullying that I got. Um, the news article was released. I want to say December twenty second, and that was our last day of school before um, winter break. And so I remember being. We had practice for the dance team that day. It was a half day, and we got released from school. And so we were just waiting for our coach to get there to go to practice. And so we were just on our phones waiting and. I was checking my phone and the tweets were starting to roll in. Mariah Barnett's a liar. She's not even black. She's making this all up for attention. No one even likes her. Go kill yourself. Just like the Mm -hmm. most horrible things you can imagine. And so I just remember like, like starting to like hyperventilate. Like I didn't know what to do. We were about to go in a dance practice. And like, at this point I was the only black girl on my team. Every other girl was white. Like, no one was going to understand my coach finally got there and I explained it to her because I'm hoping she'll understand she really doesn't she's just like ah just brush it off your shoulder you'll be fine type of thing like it wasn't a big deal to her um and then it just got like so much worse i couldn't escape it for like a couple days like people were just nonstop like i was just like the talk of like my high school just i mean it was to the point where i had to get off social media and then I would have people, like, I would have people messaging me, like, my friends at the time, who were still my friends, but not really, because no one would step up for me. I would still have people at the time messaging me things like, Mariah, have you checked Twitter? Like, do you know, like, what's, like, Mariah, have you been on social? And so to this day, like, if I get a lot of, like, notifications on my phone, I get, it's really triggering to me, and I get a lot of anxiety. Because, oh, I can like, imagine. I... Because even when I was told by my parents, why you need to delete your social media. Of course I didn't. You know, I'm a child. Everyone's tweeting things about me. I want to know what's being said. And so I'm checking and it's worse and it's getting worse and it's getting worse. And I just like literally remember thinking to myself, like, I don't, like, I just literally don't know how I'm going to escape this. Like, I literally don't, I don't know like how to, it's never going to end. I'm like, they're never going to stop. They're never going to stop talking about it. Like, it's never going to go away. And I just, as a, like, 17-year-old, I really remember thinking to myself, like, the only way this will end is if you just die. Like, because I can't, like, I just could not think of any other way that it would go away. Wow.
0: And that's, I mean, and that's so, like, it just breaks my heart because, yeah. you know, here you are, you're standing up for not only yourself, you know, for anybody else who's um, right. been affected by racism and what that flag is representative of and, um, you know, you're having this like huge weight put on you. And like you said, becoming a target to the point where, you know, you're thinking that you need to, you know, kill yourself. Right. Like, that's just, and you're a child in all of this, Exactly. Child, which is just so, Oh my gosh. It so,
1: breaks my heart to think about too, that I was a, like, cause at 17 you really are still a child. Like, and I, I didn't have an adult who was willing to advocate for me like that. And so once all that stuff happened over winter break, we went back to school the first day of winter break to meet with the principal, not to go to school, but to meet with the principal. And he told my parents that if I were to return back to campus, he would not be able to ensure my safety. And those were his exact words. Wow. And so so we turned in all of my textbooks and my parents took me out of the high school.
0: And so you finished your senior year, what, online or?
1: Online by myself. Got it. And so that was kind of a decision that I had to make because, you know, when my principal said that, my parents were like, well, (laughs) we're not letting you go back. And so I also didn't have the option to transfer to another school because when I made the decision to withdraw from high school, I had kind of made a deal with the principal to let me stay on the dance team because my parents had already paid $5,000 for plane tickets for me and both of them to go to my national competition in Florida the next month. And they had bought plane tickets for themselves because it was my senior year. They both wanted to go. I was captain of the team. And so um, I stayed on the dance team. But in order to do that, I had to still go to a school that was, like, in the district online. It was So I withdrew. I ha- it was a decision I had to make as a 17-year-old. And I thought that was what was best for me, and so I finished online, and I didn't get to have like a graduation or a senior prom with everyone I had gone to school with, my dance recital for seniors. I didn't get to have any of those milestones you work for, and it was really devastating
0: for me. I can imagine. I mean, that's your whole that's your whole life. Um, yeah. How was it? So, did you go back to the dance team? Like, did or did you try? Yeah. And like,
1: it was. It was horrible, really, um, because a lot of the girls on the dance team were involved in a lot of the cyberbullying that was going on, and um, even the ones who weren't involved were people who weren't saying anything, and looking back, you know, I hold the people who didn't say anything at the same level as the people who did, because I I was popular in high school. I was captain of the dance team. I had gone to school with people since third grade, and they didn't care about me enough to stick up for me as a human being, like... And that, that could have made all the difference. If I, if I hadn't been standing alone, maybe I wouldn't have had to leave. Yeah. But no one was willing to stand with me. And so I really tucked out the dance team thing. It was horrible. I was captain. I would go to practice and try to warm the girls up. They wouldn't even look at me. They would roll their eyes. They would laugh. I would see them on the weekend hanging out with the very people who were calling me the N-word, who were telling me to kill myself. Just, and it was just like... like I was dealing with a lot of health issues that I had developed from the stress that I was experiencing. I, I was, um, constipated for five months Wow! and I had to go through a colonoscopy prep as a 17 year old. Like that's not normal. I had to get x-rays in my stomach because my entire digestive system just shut down because I was so stressed. Like that is just not any amount of stress that a child should have to take on. Oh god and yeah when when all of that happened to me you know everyone at my school saw how alienated i was and so no one wanted to stand with me so when i say i lost every friend like Every friend that I was going to school with at the time, or that was in my grade, people who had already graduated already, I'm still like friends with. Maybe, but people who are at Marana at the time, there's no one that I have a relationship with. Like, I could never go back to my high school reunion. I could never. I don't have fond memories of my senior year. Like, I'll never get to have
0: that. Well, no, I mean, all those all those memories are um, just dredged in trauma. They're you know, tainted of what yeah. you had to to go through. I mean, and it's just, um, you know, like I've said, it's just heartbreaking. And, and I know we weren't as close back then. So, but I, I kind of knew some of the stuff that was going on and I was at, your, yeah. at your graduation that you had, you know, that you had to have. And, um, right. you know, when you did have, you know, some, some staff that showed up that I think kind of, you know, tried to support you as much as they could. But, um, Quickly, I just want to talk about, like, yeah, like, the the whole, like, teacher, I mean, I get, you know, the admin was the admin, but, like, did you feel any kind of connection or any, any, from any of the adults, you know? Yeah, like,
1: I have always been uh, that kid that teachers bond with, so I had bonds with my teachers, but I don't think as white people they knew how to talk about or address or any, like they just did not know how to go about the conversation or the situation. So they just avoided
0: it. So almost almost uh, acting or, or very much acting like the kids who remained silent. Yeah. Yeah. Got
1: it. I even had some teachers who would nervously laugh off racist jokes in class because they didn't know what, like there's only one black teacher at that school Okay. And actually, after I left that school, an admin overheard a couple kids in the hallway saying they were going to lynch him.
0: Wow, That's just it's
1: just not a good environment for Black people to be in. It's just not.
0: No, and I mean, yeah, like I just and and you know, being someone in education, it just yeah, it's like just it's mind blowing, but it isn't because we yeah. know the we know it's always been there. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know, the 2016 election just kind of made people like that feel comfortable and okay. Because when you have, you know, the leader of our country kind of signing off on those, co-signing those things, it's well, wouldn't like, okay, so it kind of brought that all to the forefront. So there was no more covert. It was over yeah. going on. Um, talk about, let's talk about you know, you, you touched on it a little bit, but, like, your mental health after, so after all this, because, I mean, it's yes. obviously traumatic you going through this, but I, I got to imagine you, you're, you like you said, you've mentioned you, you get triggered by certain things because of what you've had to experience oh, yeah. and kind yeah. of, what was that whole, because, you know, kids and mental health, I mean, it's it's there, it happens, we need to talk about it, like, exactly. kind of take us through that.
1: It's, um, it's still a struggle. It's been like, six years, which, like, sometimes I, you know, get down on myself, like, why are you so upset about this, why does this still, like, make you cry, why are you still triggered by things, but I have to remember, like, that was a very, like, traumatic experience, and I have to, like, give myself grace, but it was really, like, really hard, and I, I I had to go to counseling with my parents, because, you know, my mom's a white woman, and so I, had, like, distrust of white people. Like, I just didn't, I just couldn't trust all of them. And um, I just was very sad. I didn't want to leave my bed ever. I didn't want to eat. I couldn't sleep. I was, you know, my digestive sh- system shut down. I, I was very suicidal for months. And I there were many, there were a few times that I almost attempted. And really the only reason, and I've told my parents, the only reason I didn't is because I thought about how much it would ruin their life if I did. And like, that's really the only reason I hung on. Um, but I, I mean, it, it was horrible. It was the lowest time of my life. I got to a point where nothing, I just, I was living for my parents because I didn't, feel like I had anything to live for anymore I didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel I didn't think it was going to get better I just had given up really
0: how was counseling for you did you have a therapist that was white or of color that could relate (laughs) so she was
1: I want to say she was Mexican but she just she really didn't get it and so I stopped seeing her and then a couple years later I found another one who was a white woman and she helped me for a while and she just didn't get it again, and she made some insensitive comments. And now I finally have found a black woman therapist, and that's been it, it's been amazing. And I've also had to relive a lot of my traumas because I never fully healed from them. Going to therapists who didn't really know it, like, how to help me heal from them. Got it. Um, so I've really had to like op- reopen up a lot of those wounds so that I can like try to heal them.
0: Well, I'm glad that, you know, and unfortunately that's kind of, it's kind of a thing with like therapists and meds, yeah. <laughs> you got to go through, you know, you got to find it, but I'm glad that, you know, you were able to kind of stick with it and, and find someone and, you know, seems like you're on your way to healing, which is great and amazing. Um, yes. So, okay. So you get through that whole shit, <laughs> all that <Yep>. crap. Um, <laughs> make it through. You make it through. Thank God um, and you go to the U of A and, yes. um, talk about, talk about that. Like, what was that? Like, like just number one. Cause I mean, I went to the U of A as well. Um, and I can tell you being a dark skin Mexican from the South side, um, it was culture shock for real. Yes. Um, I mean, at least <laughs> you were already like Around white people growing up, but I wasn't. Right. I went to an all brown, all Mexican school. I could count the white people on my hand and I could count the black people on another hand. So I mean, I grew up where I was part of the majority. But right. um yeah, going to <laughs> going to the U of A was an eye opener. But so kind of how did you like how what was that yeah. whole experience like for you? I mean, I it,
1: honestly I did a like complete one eighty. I, um, at freshman orientation, um, my dad came with me and we walked past this table that was for the Martin Luther King Jr. Center on campus. And of course he made me stop, which I wanted to, but he was more excited than me. And we met people there who were telling us about this first year program for black college students where they could live in a dorm hall together and they would take a class weekly that they could earn units for. And that it would just kind of help first year black college students transition um, into college. And at that point I wasn't planning on living off campus, especially after everything that had just happened to me. I was like, really, I needed to be with my parents Mm -hmm. because I had lost all my friends and they were the only people in my life. And I was really like living for them. Like I just couldn't handle leaving them. I I wasn't ready. Um, I am now, (laughs) but I wasn't then. Um, and so I, I was really scared and my dad was like, Maya, you have to do this. And I just remember saying to him, no, like, I can't, I cannot move out. I can't do it. Like just immediate anxiety. Once he said that, I'm like, I can't do it, dad. Like I can't. And he's just, you have to, you have to. And so we looked into it more, we looked into it more and I ended up doing it. And I would say that was like almost like a culture shock for me, like getting to live around all black people. Like I had never experienced that like I had been around really white people my whole life and even like in my childhood I would say we spent more time around my white family than we did around my black so I was just used to being around more white people and so when I went to class and just being on campus that was normal for me being around white people I was used to that but being in the dorms you know just like being around all black people that was just like it was different for me, but it was amazing. And so then I majored in political science and minored in Africana studies. And I just I just started learning as much as I could. My first semester, I took a class called Race, Ethnicity, and the American Dream. And it was just a class about, like, everything, really, that everyone would need to know about, like, inequities in America and, like, social and racism, and I ended up getting asked to become a
0: preceptor. It's unfortunate you right. only get that in college, like, that's not exactly. presented it in high school. Exactly, be in
1: high school as well. But I ended up getting asked to be a preceptor for that class my second semester of college, and then at the end of my second semester of college, um, I had been awarded the leadership and the Magnum Cum Laude Award of my Black program that I had uh, joined, and so awesome. it was just really like a 180. I just... Went from being, like, you know, alienated and bullied for being black to, like, finding my community and getting the best GPA and getting the leadership award of it. Like, I really just changed my
0: life. And did you feel accepted in that community, like, fully, even though you're biracial? Because I know that, you know, there sometimes can be that whole You know, there are
1: definitely some comments that would be made, but I wasn't the only mixed person. There were probably... Ten of us who were mixed. I mean, it's really common to have mixed people nowadays. But I'll definitely say, in the MLK Center, there were some times where you know people would make comments about having white moms or just like, and it's like, it it makes you feel uncomfortable because it's like, yeah, I know my mom's a white woman. Like she knows white women suck. Like she Mm -hmm. knows they're not. She's doing what she can to and she's not representing all white women exactly. Yeah, and it's like it's not that's not my fault. Like, yeah. so, but it was for the most part, a really good experience for me.
0: Wow. Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad that you, you know, were able to find that community coming out of what you had to experience. Um, Yeah. And, you know, I know your high school experience kind of lit the fuse (laughs) Mm -hmm. for you standing up, um, uh, up to racism. Tell me about those like first kind of, I don't know, maybe where you started dabbling in activism and, you know, speaking out maybe more publicly or kind of, kind of talk, talk about that.
1: Yeah, I think I like, I mean, the first time I spoke at a rally was last summer. Um, and I didn't even know that I was going to speak, but I would say really, I started to like, um, put myself out there in a lot of my lecture halls, I would be in like between like one to 500 person lectures about, you know, that were like political science classes. So they were like Mm -hmm. about topics that were touchy. And so I really just challenged myself to always raise my hand or always have a rebuttal against the kid in class who I felt like was saying something that maybe was like, really? Mm -hmm. And so um, I had no problem with being that kid in class. And then, you know, when... Everything happened last summer with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and everything just, you know, it was so sudden. And then there was a march happening downtown, and I decided to go. And I had, I happened to write a speech the night before, and I had posted it on Twitter. And at the march, someone recognized me and said, I recognize you from Twitter. Can you please recite your speech right now? And I was like, I, uh, like, we had just marched like three miles. I'm exhausted. I'm nervous. I'm shaking. I'm like upset and traumatized. We had just like been in the faces of cops. Like I just, I was like, like, I, I guess. And they just pulled me up and gave me a mega horn. And I just started talking. That was it.
0: <laughs> and that was the creation of mariah barnett the activist yes <laughs> um, and that was how it started yeah because then you spoke at the uve right yeah um i was there for that front and center oh my god i'm emotional yes, you <laughs> i'm oh. emotional just remembering because oh, it was so powerful and it was just i mean i remember being in in the crowd and chanting George George Floyd's name and the anguish that came out of my voice. I was videotaping. I was videoing. I was actually Facebook Live, and I was, like, hearing myself and the pain coming out of my voice just because of what we were witnessing and what was happening. Oh, my God. You were supposed to get emotional, not me. <laughs> <laughs> I did not expect this. Oh, my God. So, anyways, it you, is emotional. You spoke there because it's not. I mean, we're a year away or a year out. Like it wasn't that long ago, and right. shit continues to happen. So exactly. Um, but yeah, watching you in that moment. Of course, I'm with your mama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, my daughter's there. You know, and uh, yeah, it was. It was just what to see you up there and just you know, you had written another I don't know if it was the same speech that you put on Twitter or if it was a I, different I had written speech, another one. Yeah. But um yeah, and all you ladies that were up there, um, you know, in your I know you're um at that point were like a one of the co founders of Tucson, Tucson March for Justice. Um yeah. but it it was just extremely powerful and I'm so glad that I was able to be there front and center and and experience that moment, you know, where mm-hmm. you Really was like your coming out party for you know, it was in a voice, it really was. Um, I'll
1: never forget last summer,
0: yeah. I mean, for all the horrible reasons, obviously, right. but you know, the good thing, you know, the good things that came out of that are, yeah, people, um, people speaking out, people, yeah. um. Starting to open their eyes. Open their eyes, not tolerate, you know, the systems that have been in place, starting to kind of, um, break down those walls, like, you know, slowly but surely. I know you would like to just explode them all, which we all would. I would love to. You know, but as we know things, you know, um, it's, it's, it's a process tearing some systems down, especially when, you know, your whole country is like built on them. So, um. But yeah, you, I mean, and, and not just like the police brutality, you've, you've, I follow you on Instagram and, mm-hmm. you know, and Twitter and you talk a lot about the prison systems, um, you know, just the, the judicial system and just, you know, the education system, all the systems. Because they're
1: really all so combined.
0: Talk like, about that. You talk about that, um, is it the school to, uh, school prison, to prison, prison pipeline. pipeline? Talk about that.
1: Yeah. So yeah, like the school to prison pipeline is basically, um, just the funneling of black and Brown kids from schools to prison. And basically the way that works is that, um, you know, by schools using punitive discipline, which means they are, you know, taking kids out of the classroom with detention and suspension. Um, when you're taking a kid out of the classroom, you're putting them at a higher risk of getting involved in crime and a number of other things. And so it's like, we know already that kids of single parent households are exposed to more. They're more likely to be the kids acting out in class. So you're sending home a child to a home that a parent probably is not going to be there during the day because they have to work. And so the kids only option is stay at home and watch themselves or go on the street and get into trouble. And so then they come back to school after their suspension. They've missed days of school. They're now behind in learning. They're failing their tests. There's no point of them coming to school anymore. They're frustrated. They're constantly getting kicked out of class. They drop out. They, Because they're a part of a single-parent household, they have to provide income for their family so they get involved in the streets and they get arrested. And that is a it's become such a big phenomenon and something that is such a common story of young black and Brown kids that it's the school to prison pipeline that it's happened so often. And so, um, like, the school that I'm going to teach in in Chicago doesn't believe in punitive discipline. So, like, we do not do any suspension. We do not do any detention. We'll do things like peace circles and peace talks or we'll do community service, have the kids, you know, create a presentation on something they did wrong and present it to the group that they offended. Like,
0: yeah, which is there's just a rest- lot of
1: other options.
0: More of that restorative justice. Exactly. Um, that's, yeah, that's kind of... We...
1: I, we just believe more in not taking the child out of the classroom because that the education system and the prison system are just very closely connected. The government and the prison systems get quite a bit of money every time a child comes to them and has to stay there. They get so much money to take care of that person per year, but you know, most of that money is not spent on that person and people in jail are experiencing like extremely cruel conditions they're being starved um in places where it's really cold there's no heat in places where it's really hot there's no air conditioning um they're being left in solitary confinement for months even though it's research has shown that that's dangerous that it's unhealthy that it's detrimental um prisoners are really they're treated like slaves i mean there's a lot of companies that use prison labor which is slave labor in my opinion i mean i don't know if they do this anymore but there was a while where starbucks was paying prisoners 27 cents an hour to package coffee beans and so it's like even if you think about like places like california they pay firemen in jail you you can have the opportunity to become a fireman but you make one dollar an hour and, um, there's like a couple other stipulations, but like, it's just, that's slavery, like $1 an hour to go out and do a job. That's very dangerous Yeah, that can give you, you know, health issues in the long run. Um, but we use prisoners when I drive down the road and I see prisoners doing construction, like, That doesn't make me feel happy. And I know some people like to say, oh, well, at least, you know, they get to get out of jail. They get some time to have a nice, like, break. Well, they are literally slaves. Like, they're paving our roads for free. They're not getting paid anything to do that. And literally all the system has to do is just target a certain group of people and then give them a lot of time to serve and then make them fulfill all of the duties they want them to fulfill in our cities. That's slavery to me.
0: Well, yeah, and I don't, I mean, I don't think, you know, People think about that. Like it's just easier yeah. to not, or to you know, you have the argument. Well, they did bad, so you know they deserve it. Which it's like, but it's okay, like, like did like, so... they exactly? Or
1: and, or it's like, why are they committing those crimes? You know, if if neighborhoods had better fundings for schools, if neighborhoods actually had nutrient rich grocery stores instead of uh, gas stations and. Liquor stores, then maybe kids would have enough energy to go to school and want to learn. And, like, crime is very preventable. Crime happens because of a lack of resource, and crime happens because of over-policing.
0: Well, talking about the whole education system, you are... Moving to Chicago to participate in Teach for America. So explain what Teach for America is, number one. Yes. And kind of just like how you've you've gotten to where you are with that.
1: Yeah. So Teach for America is an organization basically that recruits leaders from across the country and, um, trains them to go and teach in a classroom for at least two years. You can stay longer. Um, but basically you're assigned to teach in a region that has been impacted most by educational inequity, um, which means, you know, in areas and schools that have the least amount of funding that have been hit most by budget cuts and this kind of thing and that kind of thing. Um, So they place us in those areas and they give us thorough training over the summer so that we can go into these classrooms. And our goal then is to inspire kids and help really, you know, take their schools from being here to there and just really help out in an area where people have given up on really Um, and just give black and brown kids the same opportunities that white kids are able to have. And so um, I heard about the program. I was in a black honor society at U of A. And so they always bring in people to come and talk to us just to help us with like professional development and stuff like that. And, um, so they had someone who was a core member at the time, um, come in and talk to us about teacher America. And she kind of told her story. She was, she works in recruiting now, but she was a core member in Philadelphia. And so she kind of told us her story. And I just remember sitting there with chills and I was a sophomore at the time, maybe in college. And you know, I, my whole life, I never wanted to be an educator. I mean, never once <laughs> did I say, I want to be a teacher. Like Same. that was just never, <laughs> like Same, yep. it was just <laughs> never on my radar. I mean, I thought I I think I thought for, like, activism that I had to be, like, a lawyer or a politician or, like, there was just only, like, a number of routes I could take with it. And I still don't see myself doing education for my entire life, but I do want to, you know, do it for um, a little while and impact as much as I can. So I... um, went home and told my parents about it. Of course, my dad, again, Oh, you've got to do it. Mariah, you just got to do it. (laughs) And I know when he feels that way about something, he's usually right about it. And so we just pondered on (laughs) it and pondered on it. And then you can apply early as a junior. So I made the decision to do that my junior year and I got accepted early. And I've just been going through the process ever since passing all my content exams to, you know, be certified in the state of Illinois to teach and, um, just doing all my onboarding training and background checks and interviews with schools and everything.
0: So tell us where, where, like, where are you, what area are you going to be at? Yeah. This? I'm going to be
1: in Inglewood, Chicago, which is the South side. Okay. Um, I'm going to be at a school called the King Academy of Social Justice.
0: Which sounds so, like the coolest name ever. I
1: know. <laughs> I'm like, really okay, if you can
0: have social justice in your, it's elementary right. school, Right. Is it elementary? Yeah, It's an elementary school. Yeah, oh, like, oh, well, my actually, no, I like. Well, actually,
1: no. It's K through eight.
0: Okay. Yeah, that. I mean, I'd be sold alone on the. I'd be like, yeah, that's a it for me. I was sold alone at the name. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally. And what grade <laughs> are you going to be? Do you know? Yeah. I think that I'm going to be teaching third. Okay. Fun grade. But
1: it could change to fifth, but I think it's going to be third.
0: Okay, and you leave yeah. Monday. No.
1: Yes,
0: Monday. Monday. Oh my god! So I have three days left. <laughs> Well, I'm so glad I caught you before. I am <laughs> The craziness. And now, so, okay, so you're in this program, which just, you know, you it just seems like the perfect place for you to be and to yeah. kind of start your career and being able to help, you know, at the youngest levels with the youngest mm-hmm. minds, you know. Exactly. And also, you know, being representative of them so they can look at the front of the class and look at their teacher who's teaching them who looks like them or very yeah. similar to them who has hair like them who uh-huh. talks like them you know um you know i know how important that is you know even for my own you know for my own self it's it's great yes. to be able to see yourself reflected in you know the people around you the professionals around you because it shows you that's possible it shows you that's possible exactly um So how, so this is like, I guess pretty much our last question. I mean, if you have anything else to say, you can say it, but how do you see yourself using your gifts and your experiences to positively help, you know, the greater collective?
1: Yeah. I, you know, I think that everything really happens for a reason. And I think, you know, while I didn't deserve what I went through. And as a child, I want to just like hug myself and protect myself and not let myself go through that. But, um, I think that I've used it in the best way I can. And I really feel like my voice and my purpose is bigger than me and bigger than my family. It's, I really feel like it's for the world. And so I, um, I just, I know with activism, I won't give up. Like there's, I've, I've pretty much already lost everything from it. So it's like, I'm not, I'm not really afraid to lose anything by being an activist. I, um, everyone keeps telling me I'm going to radicalize my students.
0: And yeah, that's my plan. <laughs> I want to yeah.
1: radicalize my babies <laughs> and I'm going to radicalize everyone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to come on and share your story. You were one of the first people, you know, when I thought about doing this, you were at the forefront of my mind, because just especially being as young as you were at the time and still are, um, for you to have experienced that, um, for you to come through that, um, and not, you know, not without it's, continued struggles. I mean, it wasn't like, okay, yeah, that happened. I'm done. No, you, you, you suffered physically, mental health wise. Right. Um, you were able, you know, to hang on and, um, kind of see the light and, um, push through. And then, you know, with college, I think that just, you know, you found your community, you found your, your voice was even stronger and more Absolutely. powerful. And I'm so excited for you to, you know, reach these young minds and, um, you know, I, I just think, you know, your impact, like you said, your, and the fact that you already know that, like your impact is far greater than, you know, what you can imagine. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm so excited to see where it takes you, you know, and yeah, where I think wherever you go. Like you said, it may not be education for a long time. This just may be an experience, you know, a season. Right. But I think no matter what, you're going to be out there being the voice of the voiceless, um, standing up, fighting hard. Um, yeah. Just like I said, being a warrior. You really have that warrior spirit. So um, I'm so glad that I know you. And, yeah, I can't, I, just can't, I can't wait to see what the future holds for you. and. You know, so um, anything else you want to say in closing? Just thank you for having me, and I love you so much, and all the support <laughs> you've given me. Always, always. I've always seen that that part of you. You, you know, it, it started. You know, just even watching you dance way back when, and. <laughs> Yeah. Um, it must be the Taurus thing, actually, I think. It is. We're just strong. <laughs> I've we always are. just been like, that's, a, that's my girl. I love her. <laughs> yes. And that's my girl. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, I wish you nothing but the best. I don't know how your parents are going to do it. <laughs> I
1: know. Both you, I'm miss them.
0: Both your, you and your brother are heading off I to Chi-Town. And um, I, all I can tell you is, I mean, we talk about it all the time, Mark and I, of just, you know, we were there last year or two years ago you'll be there to visit us I will be there to visit you and you're just gonna have a blast like you're gonna be shaping minds but really just living your best life because that is a great town Um, yeah I'm so excited for you you and Eli and uh yeah so you'll have to maybe check in and let us know how how it's going teaching over there and but yeah I appreciate you I will. I appreciate you, too. All right. Well, thank you. And of just course. just want to thank the listeners for hanging out here listening to Mariah's story. I know um, it may not have been the easiest to hear, but I think it needs to be heard. I uh, And I also feel, you know, it's one thing to tell your story and hopefully have it resonate with someone so they don't feel alone. But I also feel that there's healing in the telling of the story. A so. lot of healing. I appreciate you. All right, girl. Thank you. And I'm thank gonna... you everyone for hearing me. All right. We'll see ya. I hope you enjoyed this episode and special thanks to Diver City for my theme music. If you like what you hear, please follow me on my Instagram at Life Undefined Podcast. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Still being